Hey everyone, just a quick note that registration is open for ACSA's annual Distillers Convention and Vendor Trade Show. We're looking forward to gathering in person in Louisville, Kentucky this December 4th through 6th, and we hope to see you there. Visit AmericanCraftSpirits.org to register. Thanks. If at the end of the day, uh, retailers and bar owners and restaurant owners represent American single malt. If consumers understand what American single malt is, then the category exists. Whether there's a piece of paper uh, in Washington, D.C. that says what the definition is or not. So, you know, our, a lot of our activity is and is going to be moving forward educating consumers. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, a defining moment. A growing number of American craft distillers are exploring a whiskey category that is not officially recognized by the federal government. The American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, more than 170 distilleries strong, hopes to change that. The group has proposed a standard of identity for the category, and the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, aka TTB, recently announced that the matter will be addressed in its upcoming Spring Unified Agenda. Steve Hawley of Westland Distillery in Seattle is one of the commission's founders and its president. He recently joined Jeff Cialetti to discuss the commission's efforts to establish and protect the category across the globe. He also talked about common misconceptions about the category, as well as future opportunities for craft distillers making American single malt. But first, Hawley recalled the commission's origins. Back in 2016, a group of nine whiskey makers gathered on a frigid winter day in Chicago to start hashing out the definition. Funny story that we all like to tell is that we scheduled about three hours, I think, for the session, uh, figuring that it would it would take us a while to kind of push and pull on the ideas and negotiate through to a final uh, definition or what's called a standard of identity. Uh, so we met at Vinny's during a blizzard and um, we, we steeled ourselves for a long meeting and, you know, 30 minutes in, we had already gained consensus on what the definition should, uh, should look like. So we spent the rest of the three hours, you know, just catching up and having some beers and, and um yeah it, it was um man five years ago more than five years ago now that, that we started this so that was nine of us that were founding members of the commission and now our membership is over 170 strong and i mean that that just goes to show certainly there weren't that many at the time um but that goes to show how hot this this category is in america and you know as far as the the way the single malt category has the American single malt category has evolved since then what surprised you the most about that obviously there are a lot more people getting involved but has it accelerated at the rate that you had expected or is it surprised even you um I would say that I'm a bit surprised by the sheer numbers of it I mean you you look at this country and it's still bourbon focused you know people still think American whiskey just means bourbon Mm -hmm. and some to some extent rye so um 
it's slightly surprising that that there are so many that are that are throwing their hat in the single malt ring here but at the same time you know it's it's shown to be a, a wildly popular thing and i think what's interesting about single malt in america is that there's it's ripe for variety you know this country is so vast geographically and culturally and i think that you look at traditional single malt making regions and they're they're very homogeneous in those respects so i don't think it's you know certainly it's not shocking that that people are trying to interpret single malt uh in their own way in their own region so you know there are 2500 plus distilleries in this country right now um and to see people interested in single malt is no it's not super shocking i think it's it's very challenging to get into single malt it's certainly the most expensive whiskey to make um it's not you know subsidized like like corn is and um there's a skill set required that you need to develop so i think that it's really encouraging to see people get into it and find their way to interesting whiskeys probably quicker than I thought, but um, I knew that the potential was there. So, I, I mean, I guess as far as, um, you know, trying to get a TTB definition and, and that kind of thing, where are you in that process? What have been the real challenges along the way with that? And, you know, how close would you say you are to the finish line on that? Certainly we're closer than ever before uh, to having a formal definition for American single malt. The TTB announced a few weeks ago that we would be included in the spring unified agenda. Um, they had uh, earmarked December of this year to publish the formal definition, which kicks off a public comment period. So we're very hopeful and optimistic that that will indeed happen by the end of this calendar year. Um, as far as what it took to get here, <laughs> a lot of patience, honestly. Um, you know, the good thing is that as whiskey makers, we're practiced at the art of patience inherently, but it's been a while. You know, we've, we've been speaking to TTB formally since we um, established the commission back in 2016. So it's been a five year long process. The the one thing that we were kind of lucky to have was uh, a, a large scale rulemaking process that the TTB um, kicked off during this period of time. So we've been able to be a part of that larger discussion. Now there's been a lot of starts and stops. There's been an administration change. There's been a global pandemic. There's been all kinds of things that have kind of slowed that process down but um you know it's been top of mind for them it's certainly obviously top of mind for us and we've been slowly working towards it i mean there you know aside from the 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 gears of democracy turning slowly we haven't really faced other challenges um we've we've gained you know widespread consensus on the definition that we're proposing, um, not only from producers, but from the trade, from consumers, from uh, even regions outside the US. Um, so there's 
again, widespread support for what we're trying to do. It's just a matter of time of until the, you know, really the, the T's get crossed and the I's get dotted kind of thing. Um, so we've, we've been diligent, but, but patient at the same time. So what are the specific elements of that definition? There are, uh, there are some obvious things and then there are some, some clauses that, that were kind of scripted to uh, match the, the way that the TTB kind of qualifies whiskey in this country. So, you know, the first three clauses, I would hope that any listeners here would, would find pretty obvious. You know, um, single malt needs to be made from 100% malted barley. Um, it needs to be mashed, distilled, and matured in the United States, if we're going to call it American single malt. Um, and it's got to be distilled entirely at one distillery. So, you know, globally, that is the definition that, that consumers and, and producers worldwide see as single malt whiskey. So we're not really diverging from what people understand as single malt whiskey around the world. Now, obviously, people like to look at Scotch whiskey, um, Scotch single malt, and the definitions that they have in place. As we get granular into some of the production requirements to meet the definition, um, we obviously have to work within a parlance of, of, of whiskey language and, and rulemaking that has existed in this country for a long time. So. Um, the other three clauses that we have are um, matured in oak casks not exceeding 700 liters, um, distilled to no more than um, 160 proof or 80% ABV, and bottled uh, at 80 proof or higher. So um, those are all um, clauses that are designed to fit within uh, the TTB's structure. Um, and also ensure, again, the integrity of single malt um, is maintained uh, in comparison to, again, what, what, the, what the world at large uh, sees as single malt whiskey. Now, there are a couple things that we left out that a lot of people will, will notice right off the bat. There's no pot still requirement like they have in, um, in Scotland, but that is kind of the... the the distillation proof clause um, serves the same purpose. Basically, we want to make sure that the integrity of the malt character comes through and that it's not neutral grain spirit. Um, the the Scots, they accomplish that by uh, requiring the pot still. Um, the reality is in this country, um, you know, there's a lot of hybrid stills out there. There's a lot of different approaches to stills um, and baked into the TTB's um, structure is an opportunity for us to kind of ensure the same end is reached without requiring a pot still. Um, the other is uh, we don't have a, a minimum age requirement. Um, and again, a lot of that is um, geographic based, right? It's unreasonable to expect that, you know, us at Westland, for instance, up in um, the Pacific Northwest, we're going to have a much different climate reality than 
my friend Jared down at Balcones in Waco, Texas, right? And to suggest to him that he has to keep uh, his whiskey in a certain cask for a certain amount of time is, you know, not reasonable given the the climate realities that he's contending with. So, but more broadly, what we wanted to do was create a definition that had some meaning, um, but that also left room for innovation, which we believe is is the strongest um, pitch that we have as a group here, uh, as, a, as American single malt whiskey. Um, Scotch in particular um, has, you know, been bound by conventions um, for a long time, and that's fine. They have no reason to um, try and change that formula, um, and they're making some great whiskeys out there, but I think here in the new world as it is, uh, we have an opportunity to push the boundaries of, of what single malt can be without losing kind of the fundamental um, tenets of what single malt is. And and it doesn't have to be new American oak, right? It just uh, it could be correct bourbon cask or something. Correct. Yeah, yeah. We get that question a lot. Why why not a provision uh, like bourbon has to require new American oak? Well, I mean, the simple fact of it is that you know malted barley is a wildly different proposition than corn is. Um, and again, we wanted to create. Um, uh, we wanted to create an environment where people could try new things and, and be innovative uh, and be creative in what they're doing. And, and, and an arbitrary new oak cask restriction just doesn't make sense. And it's not really part of the, the single malt um, tradition globally right? Uh, either. So, and, you know, speaking of, of the Scots, has there been any sort of, pushback or reaction from them uh, with the term single malt? Have they come around to it more that uh, about once they've seen what you're doing? Um, well, I wouldn't say they've come around to it because they were never opposed to it. Um, you know, they, they don't own the term single malt. There's single malt being made all over the world. Um, and, uh, you know, we have had conversations with the SWA and, and their support there. You know, they, they want to maintain the integrity of it as well. Mm. Uh, I think the, the last thing that anybody wants, uh, the Scotch Whiskey Association, um, American producers, and anybody else, is to see in America a definition for single malt that doesn't align with what single malt is considered around the world. So, you know, they, they've always uh, shown us support. They certainly haven't raised their hands and, and challenged or contested anything we're doing. It's in their best interest that single malt be uh, protected and and quantified here uh, in the states as well. So, um, as far as kind of public education and that sort of thing, um, where would you say consumers are in terms of their understanding of of what single malt is, and particularly uh, American single malt and Generally, do they have the knowledge to distinguish it from other American whiskey styles, you know, like bourbon rye or, um, you know, even things like wheat? Um, I think that depends on uh, who you're talking to. If you're talking about the American consumer, the, the ugly truth of it is, I'm afraid to say, is that there's a relative lack of education regardless of category. I would suggest that 
most people in this country don't really even know that bourbon's made from corn. Um, so I, I think th when you go overseas and, and make no mistake, what we're doing here is important uh, overseas, just as important overseas as it is domestically, you know, that, that American single malt as a category is um, quantified and recognized uh, in markets all over the world. Uh, when we go overseas, you know, there is a much higher level of education about whiskey. When you say whiskey in Europe, for instance, people um, automatically assume you're talking about single malt um, unless you say otherwise. Um, but when you do, um, there's a much higher level of education regarding uh, raw materials and, and, and um, different category styles. Um, here in the States, uh, again, unfortunately, that doesn't really exist. Um, there's, there's a large swath of people that don't know the difference between single malt and rye and bourbon. <laughs> rye is probably the easiest one for people to get because it names the, the actual grain. Um, so there's a lot of work to do, uh, 100%. I mean, and that's, that's really a lot of people like to talk to us about the legislative process and what we've been doing to gain a uh, definition and um, when that's going to come, all the questions that you've been asking me. But really, our main charter is, I would suggest, to educate people, to educate the trade, to educate consumers. If at the end of the day, uh, retailers and bar owners and restaurant owners represent American single malt, if consumers understand what American single malt is, then the category exists. Whether there's a piece of paper uh, in Washington DC that says what the definition is or not. So, you know, our, a lot of our activity is and is going to be moving forward, educating consumers. And, and sometimes that, that even means explaining to them what, what other categories are like bourbon, rye, wheat, and et cetera. After a quick break, more from Jeff's conversation with Steve Hawley. This podcast is a production of the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine. ACSA is the only registered national nonprofit trade group representing the U.S. craft spirits industry. Through conventions, webinars, publications, competitions, special programs, and more, it's our mission to elevate and advocate for the community of craft spirits producers. Learn more at AmericanCraftSpirits.org. Craft Spirits Magazine is the unparalleled resource for in-depth insight and intelligence for the entire craft spirits universe. The bi-monthly digital magazine features the information and analysis that small independent spirits producers and allied businesses need to operate in today's complex craft beverage market. To see our latest issue and subscribe for free, visit craftspiritsmag.com. To start the final part of the program, Jeff asked Steve to talk about some of the greatest misconceptions about single malt whiskey. Well, first and foremost, the number one misconception is that Scotland owns single malt, right? That that single malt just means Scotch whiskey. Yeah. Um, and you'd be shocked how many people still think that's the case. You know, even after 50 years ago, <laughs> you know, Japan finally you know, showed the world the great single malt can come from outside of Scotland. So, um, 
that's by far the number one misconception. Um, I think second goes to um, goes to really just cost. To be honest with you, um, I don't think people really fully grasp that you know single malt is really the the most expensive whiskey you can make. Um, just from a raw material standpoint, I mean, take the comparison with bourbon again, right? Uh, bourbon uh, is made from corn. Uh, corn is a subsidized grain in this country. So if you are a distiller um, and you want to start making bourbon, um, you can imagine, of course, depending on economies of scale and how, how big your operation is, but you know, you're looking at seven, eight, nine cents a pound for corn in this country. Well, um, I can use Westland as an example. You know, our cheapest malted barley that we use is 35, 36 cents a pound. So already in order of magnitude more expensive. Um, at Westland, we use specialty malts and we're even developing new varietals of barley. Some of those can get up to $1.20, $1.30 a pound. You know, that is an enormous difference. Um, so there's a cost reality that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. And I think there's a misconception that, you know, the raw ingredients don't really matter and it's all about the barrel and, um, why a single malt so much more expensive than, you know, bourbon or, or rye or what have you. So I, I would say those are the two main ones. Um, but that first one certainly is, is the biggest one that we hear all the time. Well, you can't make single malt because you're not in Scotland. Um, would, would you say that um, craft brewing has helped at all with, at least with availability of malt, um, the supply chain, uh, the fact that it's, you know, it can be a profitable grain and, you know, because there are a lot of these independent maltsters who are popping up and that sort of thing. Has that been, you know, a help for the distilling industry? Um, I would say that it's, it's less about availability. I mean, there's good quality malt for a good price that you can, that you can import from anywhere around the world. Well, not anywhere, but any uh, barley growing region around the world. Um, I think the, you know, even the larger craft maltsters that are emerging, uh, that are servicing the beer industry, you know, tend to be more expensive anyway because of economies of scale. Um, what I would say is that the emergence of some of these smaller craft maltsters is leading to opportunities to be more creative. Um, and if, look, if, if we're all just making, if 170 distilleries here are, are just making single malt in the image of Scotch single malt, you know, if we're just trying to replicate what they're doing over here, which look, that's absolutely possible, you know, through equipment that we can purchase, through uh, raw materials that we can purchase, through, um, you know, um, controlling maturation environments, all those things, you know, we could, we could try and, and probably successfully replicate a lot of what you're seeing around the world and Scotland included. But how interesting is that, right? How compelling is that? Um, and could we do it at a better price, right? So I think what the craft maltsters are doing are offering us uh, opportunities to be creative and, and to create new flavor profiles, which I think is really exciting. Um, and I think there's, it depends, again, regionally where you are in this country. I think there's a craft 
beer influence kind of culturally um, in some pockets, you know, certainly here in the Seattle area, if you look at the Denver area, um, I think that those influences are, are real. Um, but from a supply chain standpoint, I think that, you know, American single malt would still have emerged, uh, you know, regardless of, of some of those craft maltsters. So, you know, anything else that um, we haven't discussed that if there's anything you want the public to know about single malt, what would it be? Like, what's the key takeaway that you want people to have when they start to explore single malt? Well, I, I would just say, you know, American single malt, I truly believe is the next big thing in whiskey. I think the momentum that we have and the interest that we have from from all corners, whether that be end consumers or the trade, um, is pretty exciting to experience. So I guess I would just leave people with the idea that they should get into it, you know? Um, and that's not just picking up a bottle of American single malt, um, but it's also talking it up. You know, if you go into your local retailer and they don't have it, um, tell them they need to bring it in. Um, if you walk into the local retailer and they have it, but it's scattered all over the store and it's hard to find, tell them, hey, you should make an American single malt shelf. That's one of the main things that we're trying to advocate for in the trade. Um, and tell your friends about it. You know, buy a bottle and share it with people. Um, buy a bottle and compare it next to a, a Scotch single malt or a Japanese single malt or an Australian single malt. Um, and, and really kind of start to explore what America has to offer uh, in the world of single malt because there's a lot of good stuff being made across this country and there's a lot of excitement around it. And, you know, don't miss the boat, I guess, <laughs> would be the, the way I would put it is, you know, don't be the one that, that, that hears about it late. Be the one that hears about it first and, and knows about it. So go out there and try it. It also seems to be a, a much greater opportunity too within whiskey because uh, especially for craft distillers because um, you didn't really have um, you know everyone's making a bourbon bourbon super saturated and mm -hmm. you know there are a lot of really really big players who've been doing a phenomenal job of it from the beginning so like why it's probably much harder to compete in that space whereas with single malt most people's experience with it is from from another country. So there, there's really no American tradition there. So it's, I feel like it's almost a no brainer if you really want to distinguish yourself, this is a space in which to do it. Yeah, I, I think you bring up two interesting points. And one actually harkens back to your question about craft brewing. You know, a lot of people are, are quick to try and draw comparisons between the rising craft beer and the rising craft whiskey. But the comparisons break down pretty quickly, right? Um, you can make beer in a, in a few weeks. Uh, the rise of craft beer was really precipitated by the fact that people were tired of drinking big, bland yellow beers. They wanted something with more flavor um, and they were willing to pay more for it. Um, both of those things don't really exist in craft whiskey, right? Um, craft whiskey, takes a long time to make. It is very capital intensive to build a brewery. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, garage operations like there were, you know, when, um, when craft brewing kind of 
came into, you know, acclaim. You know, you look at uh, Sierra Nevada, literally started in a garage. You know, that doesn't happen as often uh, in in the world of whiskey. But then, you know, more importantly, I would say when all this started to boom, you know, a decade or so ago, you know, there wasn't that that foil. There wasn't that big bad enemy to fight against. You know, the guys that were making bourbon in this country are making really good quality stuff at a really affordable price. Um, and, you know, just offering an alternative to that that was more expensive and maybe of suspect quality wasn't really going to fly. So, you know, all that said, that that comparison breaks down pretty quickly. But I think your point about being able to offer something really unique and interesting, you know, in, you know, with the backdrop of, of bourbon being so ubiquitous, you know, and I'll just get on my high horse here about grains, but, you know, malted barley, you know, there's, there's an opportunity with malted barley to create such a wide variety of flavor profiles that, you know, the, the, options are are nearly endless you know you could spend your lifetime exploring this and and never get bored you know bourbon bourbon is a much more one-dimensional grain it's a much more one-dimensional flavor profile it is a type of whiskey that relies much more heavily on the the influence of the oak to create its flavors so I think that there's just such a narrow band to explore there. Uh, certainly there are good, good bourbon whiskeys and, and, and uh, not so good bourbon whiskeys, but in the world of single malt, there's just, there's so much more variety to explore um, that that's what makes it exciting and interesting to people. Do you see the potential for something like regionality within the U.S., sort of like what they have in Scotland? You know, you've got your Isla, you've got your Space Side, et cetera. Do you see that could emerge that you might get, say, uh, Pacific Northwest style or like a Southeastern style even or something like that? We get this question a lot. And even within our own ranks, there's some debate over whether that's the case or not. I, I think certainly there's an opportunity for that. I don't think that we're there just yet. I think there is... You know, there's, there's the opportunity, as I spoke to before, for anybody, no matter where you are, to create a whiskey that is not tied to provenance or a sense of place. If you want to import grain from wherever, if you want to create a certain maturation environment, if you want to uh, uh, build a, a distillery with a certain process and equipment in mind, you can you can manipulate things so well these days that that you can create a certain style regardless of where you are. Now, that said, some distilleries, Westland included, are choosing to kind of lean into the idea of provenance and sense of place. So you could absolutely draw out a regionality in your whiskey if you choose that. I would say that there are certain stylistic things emerging um, but that's just my opinion. I think, you know, if you move from east to west, I think there is um, a more traditional style on the east, which makes sense. It's a little closer to the old world, you know, physically. I think as you move west, you're getting into, you know, like I said before, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, where there are some, you know, brewing influences, some wine influences happening down in California. I think if you look at the southeast, you've got 
you know, people using mesquite to smoke their malts. So I think there's kind of a, a thumbprint being put on whiskeys down there. So I think that's true. I think that I would just say if, if those regional styles do emerge, I do feel that they'll be a little more organic and authentic. You know, you look at the, the, the quote styles of, of Scotch single malt, and that was really just a marketing gimmick. I mean, you know, they like to talk about their water a lot, of course, but you know, they're all largely importing the same grain, you know, often not from Scotland. Um, Just like Kentucky with the water too. Yeah. (laughs) Well, don't get me started on that. But but I think that, you know, they're all using the same yeast. They all have, you know, equipment that are largely built by the same people and in, in similar fashion. So, you know, you walk into a pub and you see the, the regions of Scotland on the, on the placemat. And, you know, that's, again, large, you know, you look at Isla, how much, how much whiskey is actually um, got the Isla imprint on it, right? Um, because it spends all of a couple days there, and then it gets shipped off to a warehouse in the mainland. So um, I think that if, if regional styles emerge here, it will be more genuine, but I don't think it's something that needs to happen. And I don't think it's certainly not the place of the commission to try and um, precipitate that or you know that that's that's a marketing that's a production and a marketing decision that each distillery should make on their own well I mean also you know you're looking at Scotland it's sort of like um, as peaty or whiskeys became more and more popular you're getting more um, Speyside and Highland and wherever else heating up their whiskeys more and they're sort of blurring the lines anyway because it's like yeah. you know it's it's it comes down to economics if there's a popular style that more people are drinking you know if if smoke is in they're gonna smoke they're gonna you know it's gonna be a peatier malt and that's yeah so again it, it really comes down to the choice of the distiller that's the way we see it at the commission you know the commission is not here to again, try to precipitate any kind of marketing angle. You know, certainly there's a marketing job that we have to do to represent and celebrate the category broadly, but we are we are not in the mold of the SWA where we're trying to um, make our members conform to anything from a, from a production standpoint, other than meeting the basic requirements that's our program for today. Thanks again to Steve Hawley for joining us. To learn more about the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, you can visit americansinglemaltwhiskey.org. And to learn more about Westland, head to westlanddistillery.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, thanks for listening, and cheers. Cheers.